Welcome to Be Your Own Muse, a podcast presentation of the Spelman College Museum of Fine Art. I'm Floyd Hall. Be Your Own Muse is presented as an extension of the museum's exhibition programming. In this episode, we present part one of a two-part conversation with visual artist Deborah Roberts in advance of Deborah Roberts. The Evolution of Mimi, on display from January 25th through May 19th, 2018. As a prelude to this conversation, we also feature a brief moment with Deborah Roberts and Andrea Barnwell Brownlee, director of the Spelman College Museum of Fine Art. You'll hear that vignette first, followed by part one of my conversation with Deborah Roberts. In this moment, uh, I'm joined by Dr. Andrea Barnwell Brownlee and artist Deborah Roberts here for the opening moment of Deborah Roberts, The Evolution of Mimi. Andrea, I would love for you to maybe kind of set some context for why this exhibition, why now, why this artist, what was it about Deborah's work? that spoke to you in this moment? One of the most exciting things about being at the Spelman College Museum of Fine Art is the opportunity to realize its very unique mission. As you know, we are so excited about our emphasis on art by women of the African diaspora. We're also thrilled that we have reached an important milestone, which is we are beyond our 20th anniversary. So as we think about who we want to be when we grow up, if you will, we are excited about featuring and presenting art by some of the most dynamic artists and voices that are out there. And certainly watching Deborah Roberts' career, you can see why she was very, very high on our list. As we think about representations of young girls, of young black girls, and as we think about images of who they want to be and who they see on a regular basis. There was no one more critical, no one more urgent than Deborah Roberts. It was an absolute pleasure to examine the evolution of her work. And you ask, you know, why this show, why this moment? When we think about the fact that her very first really evolved series was a series called The Miseducation of Mimi. And it's something that she started quite some time ago. So the opportunity to bring that work and conversation with some of the works that she's done more recently was um, an urgent matter um, from a curatorial perspective. She has an incredible voice, <laughs> an incredible mind, and an incredible gift. And it was something that not only the Spelman College community is going to benefit and uh, benefit from and, and talk about, but it's something that our communities in the city and the region and beyond are really going to um, benefit from. So the time is now, time was urgent, and we couldn't be more excited. Deborah, I would love to uh have you speak to that, but also maybe speak to where you are in your career right now. 
Okay. Uh, well, my career is very different than it was last year. I mean, I, and I'm talking about 2016. Um, I was um, mid-2015 to 2016, early, I was working at a shoe store, uh, 20 hours a week, trying to you know, get enough money just to pay the, the minimum amount of bills and 20 hours, and then doing my work the other hours. And um, I just, someone said, you know, I did my show at Art Palace in October, still working at the shoe store. And um, the curator came in from New York, saw the work, wanted to bring me to the fair in New York City. Uh, went to the fair, sold it out, sold out the gallery, sold out my studio, and changed my life. So right now in my career, I'm at the highest I've ever been. I don't recognize this air. So um, I, I now know that it's real. Before, I didn't. So uh, I'm just enjoying it. Andrea, I feel like a lot of the exhibitions at Spelman, um, well, I would say there's like, it's like half and half. I feel like some of them um, really are great moments to look back at an artist's entire career and other exhibitions have been moments where we're able to see someone maybe right at an inflection point when something is about to really break for them. Um, what, do you, what do you think where the institution's um, position is in terms of being able to maybe help elevate someone's career? You know, I'm sure Deborah has many more mountains to climb, but where do you see um, the museum's role in being able to help accelerate that, if you will. One of the best things about my position here is the opportunity to do what I describe as keep them guessing. And by keep them guessing, I truly mean making sure that our audiences, each time they walk through the door, are going to expect and view something different. And that strategy has really fared quite well for us. When we think about the breadth and the scope of the work that black women artists create, it's certainly not monolithic. And so by keep them guessing, I have the opportunity to show a very broad, dynamic, exciting um, scope of work. So when we think about this very real mission that we take very seriously and that we're very, very passionate about, it gives us the chance to look at solo exhibitions, group exhibitions, and think about people that are at various stages of their career. There are some artists that had their first solo show here. Again, we take extraordinary pride in that, and it's so exciting to see them evolving and going on to other, um, other venues, other countries, other projects, other commissions, and things like that. So the opportunity to use this 4,500 square feet to mix it up and make sure that we respect the work and we respect the artists and we give our audiences the chance to dive into material that they otherwise perhaps would not have seen is um, a real privilege. I'm Floyd Hall and I'm pleased today to have some time with visual artist 
Deborah Roberts. Deborah, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Deborah, one of your earlier and and well-known series or bodies of work was entitled The Miseducation of Mimi that kind of borrows from the phrases of uh, two important albums in in, uh, in music, uh, The Emancipation of Mimi by Mariah Carey and The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill by Miss yeah. Lauryn Hill. Um, what was it about those two artists, those two works that spoke to you as an artist and that resonated with you enough to make that a part of how you uh, moved in this in this mm-hmm, art world. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I love Lauren Hill, and I thought when she said the miseducation was speaking to how people saw, you know, black women that they were not. I mean, that they didn't get the full picture. So it's a miseducation, and the Mimi part of it was. Mariah Carey, at that point, to me, she was trying to figure out who she was. Was she the black woman? Was she the white woman? How did the world perceive her? How did she navigate that? So those two things, when I merged them, I wanted to speak that language. How do power meets insecurity and, and try to move through the, through the work? So that's why I merged them like that. Now, do you have any favorite songs from those albums? Does, does, does anything still move you from that moment? Because... You know, those works were, what, 98, I believe, mm-hmm, for mm-hmm, Lauryn mm-hmm, Hill and mm-hmm. 2005 for Mariah Carey. I, I think for for Lauryn Hill, I mean, I'm not going to say Mariah, I can't remember, but for Lauryn Hill, it was when she spoke about her son, Zaire, I'm not probably going to his name, and what she wanted for him, how she viewed him, how he would enter the world, how he had a father, a Marley for one of the fathers, and... I thought it was the most beautiful love letter that you can write to your child. She had power. She knew who she was, still do. And, and it came out through that, that, that album. And that's what I wanted, you know, for my work. And a love letter to the world. So how can I, you know, push this stuff forward? And I can't think of what I like from Mariah Carey. Even though I love her, um, I can't think of a song off that album right now because for me, because I always consider myself an alpha woman, like I took Lauren's side, is because I know who I am. You, you know, I don't have to, I, I know the fullness of Deborah, and I don't, I don't worry about how other people may, you know, perceive me, and I have to shout it out to the world. So um, that's why I don't remember those songs, but um, that's what I want with the work. And, and I think that the work is getting there. I think the, from that point when I did the miseducation work until the work that you're seeing, that you don't see that I'm working with silence, how blackness is now somehow being silenced. I think all of that works together. So. This current exhibition is entitled The Evolution Well. Deborah Roberts, The Evolution of Mimi. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the emancipation first and now this evolution. Mm-hmm. Um, say more about that title. I think you kind of hit on it a little bit, but say more about what that title means for this work and for you in your career right now. Well, it, it shows a, a growth, you know, a maturation process of going through maybe um, the insecurity part of it and to the, the power part. So, uh, and then you can also see how I started. Started with one image and how that, that worked its way through. And my image, it was my eight-year-old self and how I was able to, to get that work to the point to, to, 
deconstruct it to where I can start using other faces to 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 bring that language forward. So, yeah. One of the things that stood out to me immediately from when I began to learn more about who you who you are is that you're from Austin. Yes, I'm an Austinite. Very rare. <laughs> and yeah. so immediately I didn't have that much of a reference point. I think I could only think of Gary Clark Jr. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And South by Southwest. Yes. I couldn't think of, of much else about Austin. So um, tell me, you know, what what is Austin like? Well, Austin has changed a lot. Um, a lot of new people have moved there. Uh, it used to be a college town with the University of Texas and the football team. Uh, now it's more known for music, live music capital of the world. Um, so there's music all over, all the time. Um, one of the things, Austin has a slogan, slogan says, keep Austin weird. Uh, it was a very hippie town at one time. Uh, now the infrastructure is not set up for the amount of people that have moved to Austin. So Austin is a very heavy traffic area, which I don't like. Um, uh, Austin doesn't have a high black population, which I don't like. Um, but Austin do have a lot of things to offer. It's a great place to raise children, but not adults. Hmm. So culturally, when you're looking for um, like huge museum shows, um, a lot of music, I mean, different types of music coming through there, uh, we don't have a lot of that, but it's a beautiful city. But you have South by Southwest, Yes. Which brings a lot of musicians to Austin. Yes. But maybe, I guess what you're saying is outside of that. Outside of that, It yes. doesn't, okay. Yeah, they have bands all the time down sure. 6th Street and things like that. But, um, and we have Ballet Austin and things like that. But culturally, we want more. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody always wants more. Sure. So a lot of the Texas Relays have moved from Austin to Dallas, which was a, which was a major event. It used to bring tons of African Americans to Austin. That's, that's no longer in Austin. So... You know what do I have? We have a, we have a cultural museum that doesn't show relevant art. So how do you get your your feel of stuff like that? So you have to go elsewhere mm. to Dallas or Fort Worth, Houston. Yeah. Tell me about your earliest, if you can frame it, your earliest notion of what blackness was. Uh, I can easily frame that. I didn't even know, per se, I was black until I went to the sixth grade. I mean, I knew I was black, you know, people around me. But I was never identified as being black until I was in the sixth grade. And we were uh, bused to a school, Travis Heights, and which there were white kids and a few of us. And that's when I knew I was black because they, there was a difference, and they made it very obviously there was a difference. So that's when, um, and that's the only years I would say in my life that I didn't do art. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Why not? I was traumatized being in a school where people hated you. Yeah. Um, looking at your work, the work that surrounds us now in this gallery space, I look at the work and I see that many of the figures are young girls. Mm -hmm. So can you maybe frame that identity of, your earliest identity identity of blackness and 
the young girl's perspective of that. Okay. Um, one of the things um, that that this work represents is, you know, how has black beauty been imagined? You know, how has that been imagined through art history, through black culture, pop culture, and art history? So when I was young and thinking about being an artist, no, just, just by being a girl, I remember being eight and nine, wanting to do things differently with my hair and my clothes, and, and my mom had a strict idea of what uh, she wanted her daughters to look like. So that's, we, we did what my mom wanted. But now with there's a little bit more freedom with girls, um, what I wanted to show was how do we become these strong black women? I mean, we just don't pop up one day and we, we know how to take care of our husbands, our children, I mean, how to navigate life in the business world and things like that. So how has that, how was that started? And so that's what I'm trying to work through in the work. Um, when you look at these little girls, they're between the, eight, the ages of eight to 10, and they're taking control already. You know, the Washington Post did an article that said, black, young black girls are perceived less innocent than, than their peers. And I remember reading that and saying, this is crazy. I mean, because some black girls have to take on more responsibilities earlier. Um, and, and it just comes with being in a matriarchic type society. So that doesn't make you less innocent. It just makes you more aware of what's around you. So I try to challenge that in my work too. So, How do you balance that notion of that perception, the outside perception, with your internal reality? You know, it's almost like you're, you're you're having two different, you're, you're navigating two different um, perspectives, both mm -hmm. your internal one and then mm -hmm. the, the external one. Mm -hmm. How do you, or how do the, the characters or the, the figures in your work or even the ones in, in, your, in your, your everyday life, how, how do you navigate that? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's easy. Well, what I try to do, and especially in some of the works, I show the power of blackness, a power of beauty, the um, the strength that that I feel when I have to go out and, and enter the world, and the armor that I have to put on to protect me, you know, um, I see that a lot of that early on in little girls. Um, so um, I just I just try in the work and in my everyday life is to say that I'm, I'm here for you, I will support you, but I will not let you run over me, you know, or put marginalize me. So that's what I think, it's really hard to navigate those two things, but you know, I try really hard to. You talk about how your mom had ideas around how she wanted her daughters to look. Mm -hmm. um, and I think to some extent, maybe most parents have an idea of how they wanna, you know, how their kids will walk out into the world, you know, clothes, mm -hmm. hair, all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. Um, as we live in a space where we have more access to social media, digital media, where we have more access to ideas and images of, around those things, mm -hmm. how do you think that has impacted how people see themselves in the world? I think it has a lot, you know, to, to do with it. Um, 
I'm just going back to, to just, and I was a little girl a long, long, long time ago. But you have to realize that the first act of freedom, you know, for, for young girls, even little boys, is choosing your own clothes. I mean, that's huge for them. And so, you know, going out into the world, being able to pick and choose the things that you want as part of cognitive, you know, maturity. So I think, you know, when parents want, you know, they choose things for their kids, but pop culture is right there in their faces. You know, social media, I mean, if you come home and you put on um, any type of video and you see the video fixing and you see a lot of rap stars and things like that, you want to be that and you want to, you know, be able to do different types of dances and stuff like that. So, yeah, that's highly influenced how kids move into the, to the world. Um, I don't have any children, so I don't know how I would react if I had a little girl and she comes up and tells me she wants to be, you know, Carly B, because she loves Carly B's music. But how are you listening to Carly B? I want to know, first of all. And secondly, um, why I like her entrepreneurship and the way she has changed and marketed herself, I don't necessarily, and I would like my my child to understand that and want to be like that. I don't know necessarily know if I want her to be Carly B, you know, mm. in life, so. Mm. Um, there's always a certain politics around here. Yeah. Black women's hair. Oh, of course. And, yes. and I wanted to get your perspective on the, the balance of loving what is organically or naturally yours, mm -hmm. but also having the agency to want to change that if you so choose. Right. How do you, you know, know. approach that? It's a double-edged sword. Um, and I talk about this a little bit in my work. I haven't expanded on it. You know, when we see cornrows and we see, um, you know, Anglos with cornrows and things like that, first thing we say, appropriation, appropriation. But then when sometimes sisters, get blonde hair and stuff like that, and it makes them look good, but no one yells appropriation. So that's a, that's a double-sided sword. But the beauty of black hair is that it grows up. It grows, grows to God, and it's really beautiful naturally. And, and I think what I'm trying to do, especially in some of my work, is saying it's okay to, um, to do that, to have that type of hair. I mean, to use your regular hair and to make it beautiful and seem just as important, even though it's not long and flowing and going down to the ground, doesn't mean that it's growing up, you know? So I don't know if I'm really answering the question, mm -hmm. but I'm just saying that like in some of the works, like when I have the red wigs on, it's like, but why your hair is so beautiful and it's underneath there and it's being, you know, smothered by this, this Western idea of length of hair and, and straight hair when we have beautiful, beautiful hair. When did you first start experimenting with collage? Because I know that earlier in your career, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you, were, you were more in figurative painting mm -hmm. and there was a break. Something, yeah. something shifted mm -hmm. um, for you in you when did you first begin to even experiment with the idea of collage? I was telling someone earlier, that reason was, I saw 
met a real piece, Ron Artest. Okay. Uh-huh. And he was weird. Um, um, you know, he would get angry in games. And I think I had just turned now 40 maybe, who knows. And he would get angry in these games, and he got into an argument with a player, and he sit on the bench, I mean, laid on the table, and some fan threw some water down on it. And he jumped up, and he went into the stands and was going to, like, knock this person out. And I remember I was painting, you know, one of my big paintings, narrative painting, The Black Romantic. And uh, I normally have the TV on. That weekend, CNN played that black guy, big muscle, black man, going into the stand and pummeling some little skinny, little white, frail man. And they played it over and over and over as I watched while I was painting. So I, was, I realized I'm painting a narrative that I see, but the narrative that's being shot to the global world is something horrific, something, you know, no one, they, they rarely even showed the guy throwing a cup of water on him. It was this beastly person, you know, so an animal. And I said, what I'm painting and what is being shot is not the same thing. So I had to stop and do some scholarship, started reading, um, Cornell West and Bell Hooks and, and Franz Fanon and, and how, you know, blackness was being viewed. And then the work started to change. And then the collages started to emerge from that scholarship. And this distorted, this partial person that the world was seeing was not blackness. It was a, it was a person in, in, in one moment of his life. So when I do my collages, it's important that I put multiple faces because I'm asking you to see me, find me, and see my humanity outside of one image, you know. So that's the, you know, that's why the collages began, you know. Now, you may have just done a first, because I don't believe I've ever had a conversation where Ron Artest was ever brought up, <laughs> um, especially in, 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 in an art context. Uh, um, but that moment, I, I think, you bring up was and still is one of the most um i won't say triggering but yeah. it's, it's it's a very important piece mm -hmm. of, of video right. um in popular culture that right. i think spawned a lot of different ideas around mm -hmm. not just sports but blackness and black bodies and things mm -hmm. that people maybe weren't willing to investigate right um but i think in that moment when you, when you mentioned where ron artest later um met a world peace uh, when he went into the stands, I do feel like the knee-jerk reaction um, became something that was bigger than what actually happened. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, at one point, I mean, it was commentary um, that he was out of control. Maybe he was mentally ill. Um, you know, not that someone threw water in his face. I mean, that's an insult. You know whether you like it or not, and and his reaction was one of anger that most people would have had. You know any person, you know, but it was somehow scripted at you know out of control African American man, and I'm using the term African American, but I'm sure other terms were used, and and I didn't like that. 
And I was thinking, you know, what am I doing? Then, like I said, I had to investigate what my peers were doing and the way the language, you know, of creating black images, how that was being perceived. So, yeah. This notion of, of collage or this notion of, I won't say fragments, but different pieces of us being, mm-hmm. you know, constructed and pulled together. Um, it's almost as if, I mean, we all have different faces that mm-hmm, we that we mm-hmm, have. We're mm-hmm. all different with mm-hmm. our family than we are with our colleagues at work, mm-hmm, than mm-hmm. we are, um, you know, at a, at a sports event. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're approaching your work, when it comes to both the the scale of your work as mm-hmm. well as maybe the, the the idea that you're trying to uh, get across, um, how much of that is you? Oh God, a lot of that is me. And you know, when you talked about double consciousness, that we we're one way with our family and one way with other people. Uh, I'm the same way. I've been put in situations where I'm the only. And and I have to either conform with with the people who are around me, surround me, or I have to, uh, you know, I would say be myself. And and um, see, I was looking at um, some work that I can even talk about to to illustrate that point. Um, um, I guess for me it would be. Um, this tug of war piece. So we can talk about tug of war, wherein wherein the lady is being pulled to, um, like her arms are pulled together, crossed, and one is being pulled by Western idea, and the other one is the fighter, the the one that want to maintain her own independence that she will fight for that. So that's the big red glove, and so then you have the reverse of the dress. It's like the reverse of the the, the the bandana, the mammy bandana, that she's no longer that. She's she's flipped that. So you know, you know, now the black is more powerful. The circles are more powerful than the opposite. And and then she, her feet are bound by um, America. You know, the the red, white, and blue boots, the yellow, all of that symbolic of the ideas of America. And they're they're not apart because she is a part of you know, the language of America. And then her hair is, is this, this appropriated red wig. And beauty is on top of her. How we have to sometimes be two, two, two people. Um, and, I, I, and this part, I'm not really like putting anyone down, but sometimes when I see sisters that come and they have those light eyes where you know they're not really, and some things are different, I always wonder, is that fashion, or is something wrong with having beautiful brown eyes? I mean, that's who we are. So, so that trying to fit into to a, a narrative that we really are not supposed to be in, you know. But since we are here, let's create our own chapters. Let's create our own volumes, and that's what I try to do in the work. 